It was out there on the plains of Moab, across from the valley of Jericho, that the nation of Israel had gathered together. And as they met, the winds of change uh, were in the air. Uh, the transition of leadership was being passed from Moses to Joshua, and their time of wandering in the wilderness was being put behind them as they were preparing to cross the Jordan River over into the land of promise. But before any of those changes would happen, Moses had a gift to leave to the nation of Israel. Uh, he would write five books, uh, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we call those five books the book of the law or the book of Torah or uh, the Pentateuch. And Moses did not want to step off the scene of leadership. He did not want to leave them as their pastor until he left them these five books because in those five books, Moses would write and document the history of Israel for the purpose that they would better understand their present and also better understand their future. So when we open up the Old Testament, which is the beginning of the story, and the beginning of the beginning of the story is Genesis, we find out that in Genesis, Moses documented Israel's past so they could better understand their present and their future. Moses wrote Genesis to help Israel in real time at that particular point in time to help them make sense of their world and their place in the world. Moses was helping them formulate a worldview, the way that they think about the world, the way they think about God, the way they think about one another, and the way they think about themselves in the context of all of that. But for those of us, here we are on the New Testament side of things, and we've got an entire Bible, all 66 books, and we're talking about the story of the Bible and how it makes sense of the stories inside the Bible, we have to understand that Genesis, like the Old Testament, it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So as we read through the book of Genesis, what happened for Israel can also happen to us. We begin to understand that we have purpose in this life, that we are not cosmic accidents. Uh, and because we're not cosmic accidents, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And that means that our life has purpose and our life has meaning. And then when we read through Genesis, we begin to have the foundation uh, from which we know how to think about God. What's God like? What's he not like? We begin to know how to make sense of our world. Why is there so much violence? Why the tyranny? Why the injustice? Why the death and the decay? Uh, how should we think about each other? Because Genesis says that you and I are made in the image of God and that we matter to God. Therefore, we should matter to each other. And then Genesis begins to help us think through what is our place in the midst of all of this. So... As we've been camping out at the beginning of the beginning of the story, there are some lessons that Genesis teaches us that none of us should soon forget. They are lessons for life. One of those lessons that we have learned is that sin is devastating. If you've lived any time at all, and you've been out there on your own for any time at all, you didn't get out of middle school probably before you realized that this was a fact. You didn't get out of high school. You certainly didn't make it through the freshman year of college. Sin is devastating. Once sin came into the garden, it was bad. It disordered all of creation. It affected individuals, it affected families, it affected communities, and it affected the entire world. Sin is what's wrong with the world. If you find yourself wrestling with headlines and stories that you read on social media about some of the terrible things that happen in the world and you wonder, why is this happening? Sin is why those things are happening. Sin always causes us to unlove our neighbor. And what we're discovering is that sin is devastating and you can't sin without hurting you and the people around you. 
Matter of fact, I would encourage all of us to perhaps think about writing this down, jotting it in our phone in a really personal way and get up and just start declaring this every morning. I can't sin today without hurting me and those around me. I can't sin without hurting me and hurting those around me. And that's a great reminder for you. It's certainly a great reminder for me. It's a great reminder for all of us. That's how sin is. That your choices, they matter. And you can't sin without you hurting you and without you hurting people around you. Second thing we're learning in Genesis is that God is just and he must judge sin. Now, we don't like that. We don't like the idea and it makes us uncomfortable. And we wish it was something other than that. But we all want justice. We all want justice. And because we want justice, we have to understand that wherever there is justice, there has to be judgment. And if there is judgment, there must be a judge. God is just and God must judge sin. There can be no justice without judgment and there can be no judgment without a judge. But the really good news is that we're discovering in Genesis is God is a God of love, mercy, and grace. And we find that God withholds what we do deserve and God chooses to give us what we do not deserve. Mercy withholds what we do deserve. Grace gives us what we do not deserve. And so that's what we're learning. And this is important because this is gonna serve as our foundation for the rest of the story. And so what we've determined so far is, and what we've learned so far, we've put it like this. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, he's coming after us. So everybody here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset, let's all just say that out loud together. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, He's coming after us. That's the foundation for the story. Now, Genesis 1 through 11, and, and I told you at the beginning of this series, I'm going to talk to us all as though we've never heard this before. Uh, for some of you, it may be review, but for some of you, it may be the very first time, and this is so important, especially if you've ever been curious about the Bible, or you really want to know how to read the Bible and get more out of it, or just know what the heck it's about. Genesis 1 through 11 serves as what's called the prologue, the introduction to the rest of the story. Moses writes Genesis 1 through 11 so that he can actually tell the story of chapter 12 through the end of the book. So chapters 1 through 11 is the prologue. It's the introduction to the beginning of the story. And in chapters 1 through 11, we find clues and we find insights on how we should read the rest of the story. Now, something that I want to point out, and then when you go back and read Genesis 1 through 11 sometime, you, you can watch how this happens. There's a cycle that begins to develop in Genesis 1 through 11. Man sins, God then acts in judgment and grace, and then there's a new beginning. We see this happen in the garden. Man sins, there's an act of judgment, an act of grace, and then a new beginning. We see it happening in Cain after he killed his brother Abel. And then last week we saw it happen at the flood. Man sins, there's an act of judgment, there's an act of grace, and then there is a new beginning. And so in Genesis 1 through 11, we're learning two very important things. You and I have an unlimited capacity to sin, but we're also learning that God has an unlimited capacity to forgive sin. So after the flood takes place and after the waters dissipate, uh, this is where we pick up the story. It says, then God blessed Noah and his son saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And this is important, fill the earth. So after the narrative of the flood ends, Moses begins to focus on a different, you know, point of the narrative. He begins to, you know, zone in on and to, you know, uh, pretty much just magnify the part of the Bible that we don't typically like or we find irrelevant. And that, you know, is genealogies or, you know, here is so-and-so and here's their descendants and they begat and they begat and they begat. None of us have ever enjoyed the genealogies, but this 
is now becoming the focus of what Moses is writing, and it's really important. In Genesis chapter 10, you find what you know, scholars refer to, Bible people refer to as the table of nations. And there's 70 nations. And Moses gives the explanation of where nations came from. Where did the nations come from? Why are there different people groups? Why are there different races? You know, why is it that there are different tribes and different nationalities? You know, where, where did all of that start? And this was Moses's rhetorical strategy of communicating to us and communicating to Israel where all of this got its start. And in doing so, he zeroes in on Noah's three sons and tells us about their descendants. The first son that he introduces us to is Japheth, the oldest of Noah's sons. Now, I know you're thinking, this is what I came to church for today. This doesn't feel very helpful. This doesn't feel inspiring. I'm not motivated yet. Stay with me. You'll be glad you came, I promise, at the end. But you got to stay until the very end, all right? Japheth is the oldest of Noah's sons that got off the boat. And what we're told about Japheth is that he became the father of the seafaring people of Asia Minor and of most Europeans. So most European and most Asia Minor people, they could trace their lineage back to Japheth. That's, that's where they got their start. Japheth was the father of these people. So you can track them all up and down the coastlines. And ultimately, even the Greeks uh, were uh, traced back to Japheth. And so it's really fascinating. And I could geek out on this all day, but for the sake of all of us, I'm not. But... What happened is that later on in Japheth's genealogy, his family members far removed began to worship him as a god. And his name ultimately became known as, you've heard of this before, as Jupiter. He was worshiped as Jupiter. And so we hear these things and sometimes we don't know where they had their origination. That's why the book of Genesis is just so intriguing and so fascinating. But again, interesting part of the story, it's just not the point of the story. Then we're introduced to his brother, Ham. And from Ham, we're introduced to his son, Canaan. Now, we've heard that. If you, if you know anything about the Bible, perhaps you've heard that name before. And then Cush and Nimrod, and we'll get to them in just a moment. But from the descendants of Ham come the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. And if you have any familiarity with the scripture whatsoever, you recognize that these are players in the Old Testament. That's why Moses is telling us about it, because this is going to help us understand what comes later in the story. But before that, something intriguing, mysterious happens with Ham and Noah after the boat. After they get off the boat, Noah decides that he's going to go into business and he's going to plant a vineyard. And he's going to become a winemaker. And the good news was he didn't have any competition. So you can be the best winemaker when you have nobody else competing against you to be the best winemaker. But if you're going to be a faithful winemaker, you just can't plant a vineyard. You have to test your own wine. And he did. He got slaughtered. He got wasted. He, he just, he got smashed. Noah got drunk. He went to his, you know, his tent and we're told that he, he was naked or something was going on. Something was happening. We're not really told in detail. It's really intriguing. But we know that Ham went into the tent. And whatever happened inside the tent, Noah cursed, not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. And so it's led people to, you know, ask questions. Why? If Ham did something bad, why was it that Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan rather than Ham? And so, you know, people have believed, you know, you know, a lot of people believe that, you know, it was just because Ham saw his dad's nakedness and it was such a dishonor that, that Noah cursed his grandson. But it didn't really make sense of why Noah would curse his grandson and not his son, being that it was his son who saw him naked. Some folks believe that when Ham went inside the tent that he sexually assaulted 
his father. And that's the reason that Noah cursed his grandson. But again, that seems a little odd that if Ham was the one who did that, why wouldn't you just curse Ham rather than Ham's son? Then other people believe that to look upon Noah's nakedness actually meant that maybe while Noah was drunk, maybe Miss Noah was a bit drunk as well, and Ham had an incestuous sexual relationship with his mother, which resulted in the birth of Canaan, which is why Noah cursed Canaan rather than Ham. At the end of the day, they're all interesting conversations, and us Christians, that's the parts that we like to talk about. But again, I remind us, interesting, but not the point. The point is that for whatever reason, Canaan gets cursed. And once again, we see sin dividing families. Cush is introduced to the narrative, one of the great early leaders of the ancient world, and then Nimrod. You've probably heard someone look at somebody and say, you're such a Nimrod. Well, it, it has really nothing to do with the name because Nimrod was this incredible leader. Matter of fact, he was the first king, the first king that we're introduced to in the scripture. He, he presided over the first kingdom, the first empire in all of scripture. And we find this in the book of Genesis. And so this is where we get to the part of the story some of you remember from Sunday school. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And so Moses looks back to a time when the whole world had one language. He says, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now again, this was a rejection. This was rebelling against what God had told them. God told them after the boat, go fill the earth. But yet they get to this place and they're like, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to stay here. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, like I said, if you went to Sunday school as a child or you were around people that maybe came to your school and they, they did Bible stories, you have probably seen this picture or heard somebody talk about this picture when you were a kid, the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, it is the Tower of Babel and we've been told it wrong our entire lives. Chances are you were told by somebody once upon a time that the Tower of Babel was built by arrogant, proud people, and they were arrogant and they were proud, but they built this tower. Essentially, we thought of it as a skyscraper, that they were trying to build the world's first skyscraper so that in some way they could climb their way to the level of God, so that they could make their way to God. Now, we didn't really know what they were going to do when they got there. Maybe they were going to overthrow God, or maybe they were just going to work their way back into a relationship with God, but that's kind of how the story was told to us but the story was told to us entirely wrong because they're not building a skyscraper. They're actually building what many of you remember from school is a ziggurat, uh, what was referred to not as a temple, but ziggurats were thought of as a sacred mountain. It, it was considered sacred, sacred space. Now, that's what the Garden of Eden was. The Garden of Eden was sacred space. It's where the presence of God was. But after sin entered into the world, humanity lost access to the presence of God. We lost access to sacred space. But here at Babel, they are creating this ziggurat, this, this sacred space, this sacred mountain, not so that they could make their way to God because that's not how ziggurats work. Ziggurats were not about making your way to God, but ziggurats were so the gods could come down and make their way to you. Now what's happening in Genesis 11 at Babel is so important because it really is the bridge event to the rest of the scripture. What's happening in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, it is the creation of a new religion. 
And it is the creation of a brand new set of deities. Now the idea is that we're moving away from one true God, Yahweh, and we're moving into the idea of multiple gods. And the idea is that the gods, plural, the gods, plural, they need humanity as much as humanity needs them. So at Babel, what's happening is it's the creation of new deities, new gods, and it's the creation of a new religion, a religion that's actually codependent. The gods are dependent on us and we're dependent on gods. And so the gods in this new religion, they did not love people, but they needed people. This was in drastic contrast to Yahweh, who loved people, but did not need people. The gods did not want a relationship with people. Yahweh wanted a relationship with people. And so there at Babel, the people gathered together and they wanted to make a name for themselves. Now you would expect that if you're gonna build you know, a sacred space or a holy place or a place where the gods could come down and the gods would come down and then fill the temple that was built right next to the ziggurat, that if you were gonna build this sacred place, you would expect that you're doing it to make the name of the gods great. But this was all about them. They're arrogant, they're proud, and that's what sin does. Sin always puts us at the center of our own universe. And many of us have lived long enough to know that some of the worst decisions we've ever made in our lives is when we have placed ourselves at the center of our universe. That when we put ourselves in the center of everything and we expected that everyone else just revolve around us, that's when we've made some of the worst decisions of our lives. And so here they are, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And in direct rejection and rebellion against Yahweh, they create this new religion of gods who don't desire relationship, they don't love the people, they just need the people. And so it, it teaches us something subtle but significant. God cannot and will not be a means to our end. God cannot and will not be a means to our end. That's what they wanted the gods to be, a means to their end. Yahweh, the one true God, refuses to be, cannot be a means to an end. Not your end, not my end, because in the end, if God is just a means to an end, God is not God. We have become God. And we are trying to make God work for us to get what we want. And so this is what we see people doing. And if you're paying any attention at all, this is what we see people still doing today. So what happened, you know, who knows how many thousands or tens of thousands of years ago, this is still going on at the heart of our world today. Now, there's something else that's happening in this story that we weren't told about as children. It seems as though that they may be building a citadel, they may be building a fortress against judgment or against potential future judgment. Now keep in mind, they're a few generations out from the flood. So they've heard stories about the flood and supposedly God judged the world or the gods judged the world. And so what are they doing? They're creating this massive mountain, perhaps extending into the heavens so that they will have a place that is safe, from the judgment of God or the judgment of the gods. And it seems as though they are creating a system of gods, they're creating a religion, they're creating a theology that basically allows them to never have to worry about future judgment or accountability to God. That the gods don't care how you live. But just in case that there's judgment that may come, we are going to insulate ourselves against any kind of judgment or accountability to God or the gods. And again, I would say to all of us, we see this happening still today. In our hearts resides the desire for a judgment and consequence-free theology. We see it then 
we see it now, that allows us to do what we want without gear, guilt or fear. So we create a system, we create a religion, we create a theology, we create values, we create a God that ultimately allows us to live the way we want to without feeling any kind of guilt or any kind of fear or any kind of accountability of future judgment before God. That's what they did there. It's what people are still doing today. So what happened? God came down and God judged them. Again, where there's justice, there must be judgment. And God gave them multiple languages. He confused their languages. And there was the beginning of the nations of the world because the people could no longer communicate to each other and with each other. And in the act of judgment, there was also an act of grace because in creating this division among the people, people could not combine their wicked imaginations and their wicked ambition. So evil was in a way stifled even through the judgment, which also represented the grace of God. But this was the beginning, according to this story that Moses is telling of the beginning of the nations. And in this moment, God disinherits the nations. God disinherits all the nations because the nations had first disinherited God. They had decided we don't want God. We have created a new system. We don't need that idea of God anymore. And so the nations disperse and generations of people that will come after that initial generation of people at Babel will not know the one true God. Now, we don't like that. And this brings us face to face with some tension. But in a world of free choice, other people often suffer the consequences for somebody else's choices. We don't like it, but it is the way of the world. Well, how could God? Well, they didn't even know that they're innocent. They didn't choose that. Yes, but in a world driven by free choice, other people end up paying the consequences for other people's choices. And you know this is true because some of us, we have made choices and other people suffered the consequences. We don't like it, but it's the way it is. And you don't have to like it in order for it to be true. God gave the world free choice. And in a world of free choice, the choices of mom and dad can have consequences on son and daughter. The consequences of grandfather and grandmother can have severe consequences at time on great-grandson and great-granddaughter. Our choices are not isolated. In a world driven by free choice, your choices do not remain just your choices because the consequences of your choice and my choice may end up causing somebody else to suffer what they did not choose themselves. So when we read through the scriptures thoughtfully, we, we learn all kinds of things. And we see God's wrath in Genesis 11. And, and, and I know most of us grew up thinking God's wrath was, you know, hell, fire and brimstone, hell, fire and brimstone, hell, fire and brimstone. But I think that the wrath of God is when God lets us have our own way. That is the wrath of God. When God lets you go your way and God lets me go my way, that is the wrath of God and that's what he let the nations do, have their own way. Nimrod stays as king in Babel. In time, Babel becomes known as Babylon. And again, if you know anything about the scriptures, Babylon is such a theme in both the Old Testament. Even we find Babylon talked about in the final book of the New Testament. So this is so important. Babylon is regarded as the birthplace and the mother of all idolatries and false religion. That's what happened to Babel is the creation of a brand new religion, a religion that filtered into all parts of the world through paganism and idolatry. Nimrod would ultimately become associated with the Babylonian god Marduk, 
or the god Baal that we find in the Old Testament. His wife Samaris became a goddess, became known as the queen of heaven. Ezekiel writes about her later on in the Old Testament. This stuff is showing up throughout the story. So then, as I said, Genesis 11 is a bridge to 12. And so he tells us about Japheth. He tells us about Ham. And then he introduces us to the third brother. He introduces us to Sham at the end of this story concerning the Tower of Babel. And he says, among other people, some of Sham's descendants was a guy by the name of Nahor. And we're like, oh, what? Nahu? And then Terah. And it's like, mm, I don't know. Maybe I've heard that before. Or maybe I went to school with a Terah. I don't know. I don't think it's the same one. Uh, but then one of the descendants of Sham is Abram. And it's like, Abram. I think I've heard of that. Or we know him as Abraham. And this has been the moment that Moses has been writing exhaustively to get to. The first 11 chapters brings us to Sham so that he can say that one of Sham's descendants is a guy by the name of Abram. A guy whose dad's name was Terah, whose grandfather's name was Nahor, that you have no idea who they are, but they were living over there in southern Mesopotamia in a place called Samer. They were living there at the Gulf, you know, the, the headwaters of the Persian Gulf. And there they were living when one of the most important events in all of human history takes place. There they were in the land of Ur, worshiping their false gods because everybody took their ideas of false gods from Babel with them to wherever they went to. So here he is with his family, worshiping false gods. He's a polytheist. He has no idea about the one true God, Yahweh, when out of the sudden, one day, God reaches down into time and space and God chooses this man, Abram. From all the nations and all the people of the world, God chooses this one man to start a brand new nation that's gonna change the world. And this happened somewhere probably around 2091 BC, about 4,000 years ago for us, 2,000 years before Jesus ever showed up. And this is what Moses says. This is the part that he wanted to get us to. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And then he makes him this promise. I will make you into a great nation. Now, this was laughable because at this point, Abram and his wife, Sarah, they were childless. They were considered barren. They'd given up. They were old. They'd you know, just given up on having children. And now all of a sudden, this, this, this God that he doesn't know, but God in some way is saying to him, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And he must have thought to himself, I'm not even the father of anybody. How can I be the father of a great nation? But God says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Now, this is interesting. This is 4,000 years ago. Moses wrote this somewhere around, you know, 3,000 years, uh, or really 15, 1,500 years before Jesus showed up, around 14 or 1,500 B.C. So we are a long way removed from when this was first written, and we are even further removed from when it actually took place. But here, here's the thing. How many of us here in London, how many of us in Somerset or there in Williamsburg, how many of us, by a show of hands, had already heard the name Abraham before we showed up to church today? Just raise them up, Jim. All right, some of you don't understand the question. That's okay. Get the notes from somebody in class. All right. Uh, we had heard of him. This is absolutely true. This, this happened. Listen, you should consider just reading the Bible, even if you don't believe it, for this right here. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great in all the world. This wasn't true when it was written down. This became true. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing. Other people, Abram, are going to be glad that you lived. And then he says this. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples, everybody say all peoples. All 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, again, this is why the Bible's so fascinating. In Genesis 11, the nations are disinherited. But in Genesis chapter 12, God is starting a plan to win them back. All peoples, all nations. In Genesis chapter 11, we think that God is writing the nations out of the story. But in the very next chapter, in the very next breath, God is not writing them out of the, out of the book. God is writing them into the story. And Abram is going to become the father of a nation that in some way blesses all the other nations. At Babel, the people wanted the gods to come down. But in the very next chapter, God tells a man by the name of Abraham living at the headwaters of the Persian Gulf, Abram, I've got a plan. And me, Yahweh, I'm planning to come down. And because I'm coming down, the whole world is going to change. And this, 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 is, this is something else. You just can't miss this. This happened 4,000 years ago. When he said all peoples, when God said all peoples of the earth are gonna be blessed, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about me, he was thinking about us. Before you ever showed up, before you were ever a thought on anybody's mind, before you screwed up, before you messed up, God was already coming after you. God loved you so much, God knew you so well that even before you showed up on the pages of your own story, of your own history, God says, I'm coming after you. And it says, so Abram went as the Lord told him and the lot went with him. And here we are talking about him 4,000 years later. And he has no idea what he's on the front end of. But he shows us a lot about what faith means. You know what faith is? Faith is taking a step. Faith is taking the first step and then faith becomes a matter of taking the next step. And for some of you, your first step of faith is the first step of your faith. It's placing your faith, it's placing your trust in Jesus. For some of you, that's what needs to happen for you. You've been thinking about it, you've been pondering about it, you've talked to some friends about it, you've asked some questions, you've been secret, secretly curious, but the thing that you need to do is to take your first step and to place your faith in Jesus. For some of you, it's about your next step. And for some of you, that's baptism. You, you've never publicly professed Jesus as Lord and Savior. For some of you, it's about getting involved. For some of you, it's about sharing your faith. Some of you, you already know what your next step is. You just need to take it. And that's what faith does. So he leaves. Abraham's 75 years old when this happens. And it says, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Hold on. The land of Canaan, I thought Canaan was a person. Yes, Canaan was the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah, but Canaan is no longer just a person, but he's now a place. For the land of Canaan, and they arrived there, and Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the side is of the great tree of Morah, Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Hold on a minute. So this Canaan who was a person that's now a place is now a people group. Yes because Moses is a master storyteller. He has brought us into this story with our eyes wide open. We didn't know it at the moment, but now it's becoming clear. Now we're understanding a little bit about the story he wants to tell. And it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. What land? 
where the Canaanites live. This land of Canaan, these people who descend down from Canaan and from Ham, I'm giving you their land. Now, let me just say this, and I wish I could talk about it a little bit more, but I don't have time, but here we go. We don't like that. We don't like that in the 21st century. We don't like the idea of God taking land away from one and giving it to another. It betrays our sensibilities. It betrays our sense of justice. It betrays our sense of fairness. But, but here, this is not an emotionally satisfying answer to that problem. But let me just tell you what the reality is. The land belongs to God. And when the land belongs to you, you can do with the land what you want to do. He is the creator of heaven and earth. The earth belongs to him. He can choose to do with it what he wants. And so it is God's to take away. It is God's to give. It doesn't make us feel any better, but that is the reality of what's happening here. And this right here, this is going to set the stage for the tension that's going to be present for the rest of the Old Testament between Israel and all of her neighbors. This also helps us understand the tension of the geopolitical landscape in the 21st century when we hear people talk about peace in the Middle East. Peace in the Middle East in a 21st century discussion goes back 4,000 years ago. This is as relevant as tomorrow's news. And it's our scriptures. These are the writings of Moses. So let's fast forward real quick because we've got we to land this plane and you're not listening fast enough. That's why I'm not talking fast enough. But if you would listen quicker, I could get through this quicker. So it's all your fault. But I forgive you. All right. So fast forward 10 years ahead. God's promised land. God's promised a great nation. God's promised him a great name. God's promised that it will be a blessing. And all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. 10 years after this, still no children for Abraham and Sarah. And it seems like God's doing nothing. But how many of you know that there have been times in your life where it didn't seem like God was doing anything? But God was really up to something big. And that's what's going on here. God is up to something big. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. And even people who walk by faith get afraid. Some of you, you need to hear God say to you today, do not be afraid. What part of your life, what corner of your heart, what area of your thought life do you need to hear those words all over again? Do not be afraid afraid. I am your shield. I'm your defender. I'm your protector. Your very great reward. And listen, some of us could have saved a whole lot of disappointment when it came to our faith, a whole lot of brokenheartedness as it relates to our faith. If we would have just understood that God is not a means to an end. God is not a means to a bed of better roses. God is not a means to an easy life. God is not a means to a disease-free life or a disappointment-free life or a pain-free life. God is not a means to an end. God is both the beginning and the end, and he is the reward. God just doesn't give a reward of saying, oh, if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you do good, if you do this, if you do that, I'm going to make sure life goes good with you, and that's going to be reward. That's not faith. Faith is understanding that God is the reward. That it is our relationship with him and his relationship with us that ultimately is the treasure. There is no treasure at the end of the rainbow. He is the treasure. He is our reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In other words, you've not given me any kids, so I'm going to have to adopt one. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. 
And then I love this. God took Abram outside. And he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram, I want you to look up. And as many stars as you can see in the sky, one day you're gonna have more descendants than you can count stars in the sky. And I love this. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God gave Abram the promise of land. He gave Abram the promise of one day he would be the father of a nation. Then God tells him, Abram, one day your descendants are gonna be taken to a different country and they're gonna be enslaved and mistreated there for over 400 years. But Abraham, don't be sad because in the fourth generation, I'm gonna bring your people out and I'm gonna bring them back to this land that I have promised you. Now, Abram, here's what I need you to do. Take a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And I want you to slice them in two and place one half here and one half there. Because Abram, I'm gonna enter into a covenant with you. And a covenant was a relationship. It was a contract, it was binding. It's where we get the term, cut a deal. They would cut a covenant. Abram, I'm gonna enter into a covenant with you. And in those days, you had to ratify a covenant by blood. That's how you sealed the contract. And they would take animals and they would slice them in two. And they would put one on one side and one on the other. And then the two parties that were making the covenant, entering into the relationship with each other, they would walk through those bloody pieces of animals. Whereas to say that if I break my promise to you or you break your promise to me, may our fate be as these animals. May we suffer the same fate. And they would walk through those animals to ratify the covenant. That night, God appeared to Abram and said, Abram, you're not walking with me through these dead animals. I alone will walk through them because I alone am pledging to you. I alone am making a promise to you. I alone am making an unconditional promise to you. Abraham, I'm making a promise to you. It's for you. It's for Israel. It's for the world. But it is all on me. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. An unconditional promise to say, Abram, it doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are. It doesn't matter if you obey or disobey, whether you're faithful or faithless. I have made an unconditional promise to you and I will keep it no matter what. And God had chosen Abram to be the father of a nation called Israel through whom he would save the world. God chose a man. God chose a family. God chose a nation through which he would send a savior to the nations. And Abram, teaches us something about faith in this moment. He teaches us that faith is being persuaded that what God says he will do and it is good as done. And from that moment, 
from the rest of the Old Testament on, the waiting begins. When will God keep his promise to Abram? Abram misstepped. He screwed up. But God never relinquished his covenant promise to Abraham. And 2,000 years after he made that promise, the Apostle Paul said it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Jesus, the son of Abraham, a descendant of the father of the nation. And through Jesus, the whole world has been blessed just as God promised Abram it would be. And right now, this day, all over this planet, in corners of our globe, in the deepest parts of the jungle, by the seashore, at the cover of night, hidden away in basements, and some in the middle of forests, there will be people who will gather together all over this planet from every nation, and they will sing a song to Christ, and they will worship Him, and they will proclaim His gospel. What God promised to Abram, it came This is what Paul said looking back. He said, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was 100 years old in Sarah's womb, he considered also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But this is where we come into the story. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That God made a way so that the unrighteous people of the world like you and me, the unholy, the unclean, that through his grace and by faith, Jesus, the Son of God, we could be declared what we are not. We could be declared righteous and holy and clean because Jesus was righteous, holy, and clean. And he has been credited to our account. And now God looks at us as though we lived the life of Jesus, though we had not, because Jesus died as though he had lived our life, though he hadn't. And that is the story that we are caught up in. And at the end of days, the book of Revelation says, John said, I saw in heaven, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne the nations 
ran away. But God had a plan and he came after us. And from the very beginning, God loved you and God loved you and God loved you. And he had a plan from the very beginning to bring you into his family once again. And one day around the throne of God, every tribe, every nation will be represented because God kept his promise like he does all of his promises. Heavenly Father, you are so faithful. God, you have had us in your heart from the very beginning. And I pray that in this moment that you will speak to us what we need to hear. Do in our hearts what needs to be done. At all of our churches, let's just stand together. We're going to sing a song that we sang a little bit earlier. And in this song, it talks about the King of Kings. And it tells us the story of Jesus. And it reminds us of the story that we have been written into. And today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, today you need to do that. And maybe you've been thinking about doing that and even now you feel that you need to do that. And all you have to do is just to say a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe that you love me and you sent Jesus to die for me. I believe that he was raised from the dead. I ask you to forgive me. And today I place my faith in Jesus and I want to follow him all the days of my life. And you can do that. Maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you just need to be reminded of what it is that you have been invited into. How incredible, how miraculous. And that today maybe gratitude would just spill over from your heart as we lift up the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, do in this moment what only you can. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.